Hey guys, this is Garrett Boyum. I'm here with Brock Hammett. Uh, we are putting together a podcast um, and we're wanting to focus on motor learning, um, skill acquisition, and um, player development um, through a analytic, analytical lens, a data-driven lens, um, and how those two things, skill acquisition, motor learning, and data can converge together uh, to help develop baseball players. Because um, baseball is kind of our, our passion. Um, Brock, do you kind of want to give a little bit of background on yourself, like things that you're interested in and, and passionate about? Yeah. Like you said, I think the number one goal is always what gets players better, you know? So for me, I know that we can look at a player's data of, of what's happened and kind of try to work backwards into how to get them to improve, basically identifying, you know, their strengths and weaknesses and, and developing a plan for their development and also developing a plan um, for them to go compete in the game. Um, but a lot of that, um, you know, involves some of the stuff that, that you're interested in as far as, you know, creating environments for training or, um, you know, designing practices to improve some of these weaknesses that we're able to identify with data. So the two really play, um, they go hand in hand really as far as, you know, we can use data to identify what we need to improve on, um, kind of at the broad and also, you know, the very granular level, but how we actually get them to improve in those areas is very dependent on the environments we're putting them in training and in practice. So I'm excited to kind of explore, um, just kind of casually what is possible, what could work and hopefully, um, just kind of inspiring others to, you know, do the same. Yeah. I think one of the other things too, that I'm kind of hoping to do is one, like, like you were saying, talking about what is possible and then, you know, laying out what that would look like and then people can actually go try it out and then we can also experiment with it and, Hopefully we, you know, we want to engage with other people and other coaches that are passionate about uh, making players better. Um, and, and I think a lot of coaches, including yourself, like it comes from like our own playing experience of not achieving as much as sure. we felt we were capable of. Um, and so like I know that that's, that's been a big driving factor for me on like why I do what I do. Um, but secondarily, when it comes to the motor learning stuff and the skill acquisition stuff, there is a lot of terms and concepts and ideas that are being floated out there that a lot of people don't really understand yet. And because of that, there's also some levels of misunderstanding and misinformation out there. And so you know, one of my hopes is to try to bring these concepts um, to a level at which other people can understand and be able to actually interact with um, while still trying to um, keep the, the terminology like high level, but also um, kind of in a similar way of like uh, Paul Nyman 
making intent a, a word that like a lot of coaches, uh, you know, can identify with now and utilize. So kind of one of my goals or one of our, one of the goals of this podcast is to kind of, um, focus on that. Uh, Brock, do you have any kind of goals and hopes that you're wanting to achieve, um, on your end, either with data or anything else? Right. So, um, obviously a lot of the, you know, skill acquisition, movement solutions, you know, dynamic environments, et cetera, is very new to me. So what I'm excited about is trying to quantify these concepts. So, you know, how do we go about practically doing this to try to see, you know, what is what is successful as far as the environments we're creating? Because if we track it, we can we can see if this is a an environment where players are getting uh, better or not. Um, as far as a movement solution standpoint, is there a certain movement solution or pattern that a player goes to in a specific environment that uh, is not successful? And if not, then then why? So, I mean, you said some things that kind of got me excited and um, for, for opposite reasons. Um, <laughs> One, I, like I'm super excited because like you're talking about trying to quantify this. I don't know right now of anybody who is trying to quantify or like is even interested in trying to quantify things from an ecological or dynamic systems theory perspective as it relates to any sport to my knowledge, but particularly baseball. And I think baseball is is quite ripe for that because you know so much of the mantra or culture right now is being data-driven. Sure. Um, and so, but secondarily, as we kind of dive into these ideas and concepts, I think we will have to struggle with, well, is there uh, uh, like these movement patterns or movement solutions? Is that a thing? Right. Um, I think that those are things that we're going to kind of talk about. And these are some of the things that I think a lot of people, for me personally, like, once I got really into the motor learning stuff or the skill acquisition stuff, especially down um, the ecological and dynamical systems um, route, like it completely changes the lens that you see the world through. Like the only other like terminology that I could even like compare it to, like from a, like almost like a religious sense, like, you know, being, uh, sort of born again and like that whole thing of like how your whole world view shifts when like you you become a Christian and so like that for me like looking learning about these concepts and like really understanding them more like has completely shifted how I view player development and you know being a quote unquote newer convert to uh, ecological and dynamic systems theory for skill acquisition, there's still a lot of questions that I have um, in terms of like there's old ways of doing things that I just haven't quite understood how to um, address those issues. And so, you know, to to give some like to give the listeners a little bit of like specific example, that would yeah. be pitching or throwing. Like that's where I'm still kind of struggling to understand how to apply these principles there. But hopefully tonight we'll get to 
um, talking about hitting where like these concepts are a lot, a little bit more easy to understand. And we can talk about it in defense too, as well. Um, but just to give an example of where I'm still trying to learn and grow right now is kind of in the realm of pitching, um, specifically. Um, so yeah, Brock, any, any kind of thoughts currently? Yeah, I just think I want to get into it a little bit and, and maybe you can kind of guide me through, you know, your lens as, mm-hmm. as I see it. Um, so an environment, let's just talk about very specifically in hitting an mm-hmm. environment could be, um, whether or not you're facing a pitcher that's left or right handed, right? Or, yeah, I mean, so like the thing though, I want to kind of back up, like those are all part of the environment. But I think when it comes to as coaches, when we're, when we're doing stuff with a player or like our whole goal is to do things that are going to make them better at playing the game of baseball. 100%. Right. So, that's why when we're doing our analysis, we want to look at the game itself and um, look at. So when we're talking about an environment, like we want to look at the game environment. So we, we want to like start there. And so what's in the game environment that's like important? You know, we have the pitcher, um, you know, like the innings that the type of surface that you're on day game, night game, weather conditions. Um, you could talk about the, the, the culture or the chemistry of the team. Like that's going to play an effect on the environment as well as the cultural, social cultural environment. Like it's different playing in the U S versus in Japan or, um, I'm trying to think Puerto Rico or like one of the, um, I want to say like Latin uh, or Hispanic um, countries. Like that's a completely different playing environment. Like the world baseball classic, like you, you see how the fans react and how the players react is all different. And that would be an example of like socio cultural like influences and that, that would fall within the environment. So when when you're thinking about i guess the environment like those are kind of the first step things that i i think about um but it goes beyond that because like from there it becomes really important to think about like okay what information is really relevant to the performer exactly but we can't even start to talk about that until we kind of talk about uh Carl Newell's constraints theory. I mean, because that that kind of whole um, framework kind of sets up like this whole thing of looking at the environment too, to a certain extent. So basically, Newell's kind of constraints theory is looking at what constraints are are on the performer. So like with this podcast, I mean, this is our first one and we're trying to figure out which constraints um, basically help us have a better conversation. Cause when, when it comes to like, we're struggling with the intro, like it's like where to start. Mm-hmm. 
Like, but once you have good questions and good focus, like that constrains the conversation to actually have a better conversation. So similarly, when we're thinking about athletic movement, we're thinking about, okay, what are the factors or the constraints on the individual that help shape their movement? Um, like people think about like freedom as being like, oh, that'll help you be super creative. But I've heard of like, actually when it comes to like, say for example, when they're trying to put a man on the moon or like things in space, and then you're constrained by those factors and you have an issue with um, astronauts in space, your creativity level shoots up because you're actually constrained. Um, your options are way more constrained. I mean, there's kind of the, like when you're a novice at something, it's like going to the store and you have 50 um, choices of cereal and it becomes like kind of overwhelming. But like, as you gain experience, you know, like, Reese's Puffs is yeah. the one you want. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, similarly, like when we're talking about the constraint-led approach and how important it is to um, player performance, like this is a completely different, like or a paradigm shift essentially of thinking about movement because before it was about like, oh, well, what are their mechanics doing? Like, what are the mechanics? Like, oh, their mechanics, like that's why they're not performing well or why they're performing well. And it definitely plays a factor, but it's like, well, how did those mechanics emerge? Right. Essentially. And so the constraints theory helps explain what you see unfolding in terms of movement behavior. Um, and so the environment is only one portion of that. So for those that have seen the constraints kind of, uh, triangle or approach triangle, right? You have the environment, um, the task, and the organism. Um, and those three kind of interplay, they all have different constraints or things going on with them that interplays with the individual's perception of the environment along with their action that produces the outcome or result. Um, so that's kind of like a very general, broad overview um, to kind of kind of get the get this moving along a little so, bit. So let's 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 try to um, periodically apply this to just one situation, um, and and that way we can kind of get a good like parallel of like concept to practicality. Mm -hmm. So let's take the this triangle mm -hmm. for instance, and yep. let's just apply it to the pitcher versus hitter confrontation from the perspective of the hitter. So yeah. his, what's, what is, what would his environment be? What would his task be? What would his perception be? And let's, let's go from there. So you want to kind of investigate, okay, what is the problem problem or what is, what is the task to be solved? Right. So when it comes to hitting, like what, what are we trying to do there? Get right? hits, like, get hits. But really, when we're on offense, what's the whole goal? Well, if it's me, I would say hit a pull side home run as far right. as Right, but can. what does that do? If you hit a pull side home run, what does that do for you? Score runs. Yeah, right. So the whole point of being on offense is to score runs. Yep. So that's what hitting is all about. Do things that are going to help you score runs. Right. That's the task. That's the task. And so 
in that, then when we start looking at the environment, okay, you have a guy who stands 60 feet, six inches away with a ball and has to throw it within this certain zone. Mm-hmm. Um, or basically puts you at a disadvantage if he throws it in a certain zone and you don't hit it. But I think where the shift can happen a little bit is like, okay, yes, there are hot zones, but sometimes guys hit balls that are out of the zone that contribute to runs. And so I think to simply talk about it just as a strike zone, um, that is a side tangent, but to simply talk about it just as a strike zone and only hitting balls in the strike zone, I think does a disservice to the actual game. Yeah. The actual game and the actual strategy and different things like affordances um, that, that we'll kind of get into more, but to try to go back to your initial question of like, okay, what else is in the environment? So you have the pitcher who's trying to throw a ball, you know, and basically, essentially the pitcher is trying to make you miss or have weak contact or hit a ball to a defender so that they can prevent you from scoring runs. Right. So in essence, that is kind of the environment in a real nutshell with without getting too granular. Right. I mean, we can get way more granular all the way down to like the batter's box and the dirt and like Let's all that sort of stuff. Let's spare the but, listeners we have from going that deep. But to, to understand like thinking about it at that level, like you can go that direction to talk about the individual – that is within the environment, like we can do that, but to stay with the environment component, like those are the type of things. Um, I don't remember if I mentioned before, but you have the, the weather, right. You know, all those types we have of things. Some, we have so many. And so for me, looking at it from, you know, an analytical standpoint is I understand that, um, you know, the wind to, you know, you, you were getting into the socioeconomic surrounding of the players um Uh, more cultural versus economic but economic can be a component of that i guess my my framework of looking at this is i understand that you know there's so many factors that make up this environment even when we're just looking at the hitter versus the pitcher Mm -hmm. but how can we essentially filter out the noise of all that and find which um elements of that environment are able to shift the hitter's performance one way or the other. Um, and I don't know if, I don't know if that's something that is possible, but obviously I would imagine that there's, even if you can, there's going to be certain elements that are more correlated with a change in the hitter's performance than others. I don't know how much. Well, so like in my mind where, you know, if let's say we're, in a professional setting, right? And it's like, you're a coach and you want to go to your analytics team. You would, how you would potentially factor in the environment is you would want to look at, okay, what, what are the performance settings that they'll play in time of day, weather? Um, you could even look at, okay, what's the weather like and where we're going to be playing? Um, what's the surface going to be like? Um, I'll give an example from when I was, uh, coaching in Michigan, like, there was, we played on a turf field, like our home field was turf. And then we went and played, um, one of a, one of our weaker teams in the, in the conference and they had a really garbage field, like grass is long, field is uneven. 
uh, it might have rained a little bit and then it got really hot. And so like the dirt all of a sudden now when guys were sliding, they were sticking. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden like that environment shift in playing surface like alters how they're going to play the game. And so real simply how you can utilize data is to see how different players perform um, in different settings. And then from there, from a training standpoint, then it's about creating practice design that is representative of the types of environments that they're going to be playing in. Um, And so, you know, if you were to just look at the environmental factors, that would be one way to look at the data and be like, you know, we play only one game on this one type of situation and it doesn't really matter that much. Mm-hmm. Like it's not that important right. for like this, this, this is more obscure. And then looking at the data, we see that this type of environment is more common. Therefore we should focus more of our practice design around this more common occurrence and these more the more important situations to that occur within and across environments. And then that way, when it comes to practice design, you can make sure that those components are present in the practice design. So I think that gives a pretty good um, overview of what an environment looks like in, in the baseball uh, realm, I guess. So if we were to continue on, um, as far as what the batter is going to face, you know, that's his environment. Um, so would you talk about, um, you know, the situation of the game and that the situation of part the, of the pitcher? Okay. Yeah. So that's part of the environment, but would you also say that's, those are constraints that the hitter is facing, whether or not the pitcher is I mean, that average, is- above average, you know, the arsenal that he has. Um, because to me, those are the, probably the the biggest factors that are affecting the hitter, um, you know, is basically what the pitcher can do and what the pitcher will do, what the pitcher is doing. So where do you, where does that fit in as far as I guess the environment or some of the constraints that the hitter is facing? So one thing that I wanted to kind of address initially is like, okay, when we talk about constraints and doing doing a constraint drill, like Mm -hmm. this is more what I think I'd like to see a shift in the use of the terminology because we want to apply constraints that are relevant to the game because they, these are the constraints that they will be in and under in the game. Right. And we may not be able to recreate it in a one-to-one fashion always and have all of them present, but you might, it might not also be, it might actually for a, like a novice athlete, that might actually be too much. Mm-hmm. So we may have to reduce the number of constraints in terms of pressure, in terms of situations or whatever, so that they can attune to some of the more basic information. Um, I will at some point have to say what I mean by attune, um, which just basically means becoming more sensitive to uh, specific information that is useful to performance. But that's kind of more of kind of how I would start to look at that component. Um, 
kind of what was what was kind of the secondary component of your question so you make sure to cover it if I haven't already no I, th- I think that did a good job I guess what I'm getting at or trying to get to is we have different constraints and we have different environments so for me I want to know which which of these constraints which of these environments um, are relative to performance either good or bad you know are they doing where do they struggle in you know these types of environments then then it's our job to create environments like that so they can become better mm-hmm. and like that. And in the same with the constraints that they're facing in game, whether that's uh, velocity, pitch movement. So then it becomes um, our goal again to create um, constraints that they're facing in practice so that they can become better at what they're going to face in the game. Now, kind of where I was wanting to go is, Given all these environments and constraints, hitters have different options to try to solve the 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 task, which is to get hits to score runs. So what what's interesting to me is that we have all these changes in environment or changes in constraints that hitters are always facing. Whether you know when we went through the whole gambit of what it could be, uh, <coughs> but you know, how do we evaluate the different solutions that the players are trying to execute? Um, and what that could look like would be, you know, if a player has uh, a certain type of stride that he is utilizing based on the constraints in the environment, is it successful? Is it not? Can we analyze these types of solutions that the players are implementing given certain constraints and, you know, in order to try to get them to use uh, better solutions given constraints. I don't know if that kind of makes sense or if it's practical. I know you're kind of in the framework that just whatever works, but if we had the opportunity to analyze something that they were constantly trying to go to to solve a problem that wasn't working, you know, being able to quantify that specific movement adaptation or, or whatever the case may be um, could help basically scrap movements or, you know, different adaptations. I think like it depends upon the sensitivity of your measurement measurement and like a less sensitive measurement would say, for example, if we're one kind of, I want to say major tenant or concept that highly influences um, like an ecological approach um, is the fact that like we're not able to like you're not at no point in time are you exactly doing the same thing the same movement that you've done in the past so if that's the case then there's going to be variability yet there's also the fact that there are there happens to be stable movement patterns or couplings. Uh, I'm trying to think it's like coordinative uh, structures, I believe is kind of more of the, the technical term, but like that and synergies that you will see kind of clusters. Like, so right. again, like exactly. so if we're talking about data, right? Like there's not, when you get like a number that's an average, that's not an actual like that may 
or may not, and probably more likely may not, be what they do all the time. Right. It's just an average of that, and it's one data point that may not actually be one of their actual data points. Sure. Right? So there is variability even within data. And so really you're looking at where are the clusters. So when it comes to movement behavior, you're looking at where are the clusters of movements. And essentially that's to me like what an actual pattern is. It's like, oh, hey, there's a cluster of data happens to cluster in these areas. That is a pattern. So which gets away from this whole thing of, hey, there's a movement pattern and that movement pattern is literally the same thing over and over and over again. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, that's not what... Not necessarily, but it is, like you said, clustered. It is, you could bucket it together in that it's similar enough to, we can get a general idea of, you know, its success or failure, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Yeah. And I mean, because like, this is what I mean of like a, a shift in like the lens and through which I like view the world. Like before it was like, oh yeah, when I heard movement pattern and I, I believe that that's how people use the word movement pattern now is to mean like a carbon copy of that move. Right. Like, and really, if you actually go back to the original root of it from like a mathematical standpoint, it's like, no, this is a cluster of variable data Mm -hmm. that happens to be clustered tightly or within a certain bandwidth. And so... Essentially, you can then quantify movement things in terms of like their variability, like, and it depends upon how you set the bandwidth of your measurement. Um, I mean, Rob Gray has talked about, and I'm very much interested in like the uncontrolled manifold analysis um, and how things fall along a certain line. Um, he's, he's used it to talk and analyze hitting in the sense of like, Okay, how much, as long as they're, say, for example, in in his podcast, he talks about like timing and he he simplifies it and it's easiest to talk about when it's in the simplified form of like the wind up and then the swing Mm -hmm. and then the time of the pitch. So really it becomes just a math equation. So let's just say to use Rob Gray's hypothetical, the pitch takes uh, 600 milliseconds to get there, to arrive in, I'm going to say, to arrive in the hitting zone. Mm -hmm. So the batter needs to have their windup and their swing equal 600 milliseconds. There is an infinite number of ways that you can get that equation to equal out on either side. Right. Right. I mean, it can be 100 uh, plus, you know, 500, or it can be something super really granular as like, which I'm not going to get the math right, but hopefully you get the point of like 235.689, whatever, you know, plus, um, what would that be? Like seven or, yeah, probably seven, 700 and something point, whatever, right? Like that's how granular it is. It can be how much, how many infinite different options you have. As long as you move along that manifold and it equals 600, Mm -hmm. you're good. Right. And probably, let's just be real, right? The ball is in the hitting zone. That is actually its own time, like hitting zone from 600 milliseconds to 608 
milliseconds. Right. So you like you actually have some play within that. Sure. To to actually like do that, and you could potentially mathematically, you know, create these types of equations, and you could get this too with like, you know, how granular you want to go with like something like blast and other metrics that you could use to try to start quantifying like, oh hey, how do they create adjustability in their swing to adjust to different pitch speeds, different timings, so that their swing is able to handle a different range of pitches. I mean, because a big concept within ecological dynamics is having a dexterous uh, performer, one who is adapt at handling a multiple different situations kind of in, I would say, like high-pressure situations, you know, and like, they can handle whatever's being thrown at them. I, I think that's like the cool thing about this um, philosophy or ideology is that in theory you could create a highly adaptable and dexterous hitter. Like, which to go back to like talking about a pitcher is much harder because their task is a little bit um, more narrow. Whereas a hitter is reacting to a lot of different things. A pitcher, how much their environment changes is much less than mm -hmm. how much I the environment that. changes for a hitter. Uh, so... Hopefully that kind of answers uh, your question. Yeah, it's definitely interesting because um, I feel like to be able to, maybe there's not a perfect way to quantify some of this stuff, but I think that, you know, if you tried to apply like some domain knowledge and... and Do you want to explain what domain knowledge means? Because that sounds like a technical term. <laughs> Basically, it's, you know the the specifics of um you know a certain type of industry or, or setting that you've gained expertise in from your experience um and, and so what would this look like in in terms of baseball and where you were kind of going with your point right so okay so how do we um you know measure how much adjustability a certain player or even a certain move has. Okay. So for me, like the thing that I'm thinking about now is let's take instances where a hitter is fooled, right? Now that's not necessarily something I can prove, but in my experience, I think we have enough domain knowledge in that we can see a swing and know that based on the other context, uh, the pitch type, you know, if it's a curveball and how the hitter's reacting to that, we can more or less say, okay, he was fooled by this pitch. Um, now let's look at his solutions to that. So it's, so it's, would you like to actually try to quantify or like describe what that is? Would you say like, would, would most coaches agree that it's like being off balance. Like that's how you'd know that he was fooled was like his swing was off balance. Right. Quote unquote. And so it's like, well, if someone didn't know what like baseball was and we tried to say, oh, he like he was off balance. Like you, it would probably be hard to picture like what that actually looks like. But I know like me and you just talking about a hitter being off balance. 
we have pretty much the same mental imagery of a player sinking into his front side longer, you know, hands out, yeah. ass out type yeah, of thing. Yeah. You know, We're we lunging have, at the ball essentially, right? Right. So we we know what that that looks like, and so it's like, well, maybe you know, it's not perfect um, to quantify or to even say like, you know, we can't say for sure that he was fooled, but you know, just looking at these types of splits and, you know, kind of bucketing them and then looking at the movement solutions that the player was going through and just kind of see what different variability or adaptations the hitter has when he's fooled. So, you know, it's not, unfortunately, it's not perfect science because I can't necessarily prove one way or the other that the hitter was fooled. But being able to have, like, the specific knowledge. I mean, but let's just be real. Like, I mean, you've played. I've played, right? If you were fooled, and you know you were fooled because you were out in front and you didn't hit that ball kind of where your typical sweet spot is for your swing. Right. Right. And so, like, I I think that's how, you, like, from at least my experience, and I'm sure lots of other people, it's like, if I'm going, oops, like, in the same way that, like, like, you know, because we have glasses are on the table here. Like, if one were about to fall, you're like, go quick, reach and mm-hmm. reach for it. Like, that essentially, to me, if 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 that movement looks similar to that, they're probably fooled because they weren't expecting that. Right. Like, I, I think that's how you could kind of define that a little bit more. Right. So, I think, you know, just to be able to, you know, take that and then try to... I guess, bucket different successful or non-successful adaptations hitters have within that and just kind of see the percentages or how often a hitter um, does a certain, I guess, like clustered adaptation to see the success rate of that specific adaptation. So it's like we said, okay, um, he was fooled. Mm -hmm. Does he... Um, you know, and this is, I'll just go through a bunch of hypotheticals and what you could possibly cluster and what you maybe couldn't. So is he changing his posture, um, in the start or during the swing? Is that what you're talking? We'll say, we'll say during the swing, is he changing his posture? What kind of success does he have that? Is he, um, shoot, I don't know. Um, where where is where the contact points maybe like you could even start looking at like arms where the arms are in relation to the contact points right um, is he extending his arms what out in front of his body versus are, yeah yeah exactly is his is he you know getting some reciprocal movement is that something that you know and that's a whole nother rabbit hole. I mean, but you could either. you could look at all this stuff in terms of like biomechanics, right? Like even like a you know, basic system like Canovia, I believe is what it's called, or just even your naked human eye drawing lines on a on a player, you could you could pick out some of this stuff. You know, as you were talking about this, I'm like, ha, huh, machine learning. Like somebody could easily like develop or not easily, but I think it's very now within the realm of possibility for the software and machine learning to actually develop an algorithm um to 
to actually like pick out those things. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if anybody or any company takes that idea and actually develops it, um, as a thank you, you should definitely like reach out to us and show us. Yeah, because <laughs> subscribe. That would that would be super super cool and awesome to actually see that uh, that technology exists. And maybe it already actually exists, and somebody's actually already done it. Um, but still, like that that's what's so cool about like the day and age that we, like, we live in is like it's now possible to do these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's super exciting to get to talk to you who's like delving into that. Um, so like what other, what other things are, are you kind of liking to do with data and you could see um, like applying data to these types of ideas? Yeah. So, you know, I was talking about kind of how do we, analyze certain adaptations, whether that's a leg kick, a stride, um, a certain type of upper body move, and you can really start to quantify, you know, the more tech you have at your disposal, the more you can start to quantify this stuff. How much hip to torso separation is he getting? You know, all these different technical solutions. I know we were talking about earlier this week, um, you know, swing radius, like how close is the hitter launching his barrel relative to his body from given the constraints, given the environment. So a practical example is, okay, it's a, it's a three, one count. So we'll say that he's sitting on a specific pitch, just say fastball. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't have to, because of the leverage he has in the count, he doesn't really have to honor an off speed pitch as much because his trade off, if, if he swings a miss, he's still in a good plays relative in the count so he can afford to hypothetically lengthen his swing arc by um, maybe launching further away from his body giving his barrel more time to accelerate and and hopefully hit the ball harder um, to get a better result versus in an 0-2 count um, you kind of have to due to the constraints of if you get another strike, you're out, um, contact becomes much more important because you don't want to strike out. So if I shorten my swing arc, uh, I hypothetically have more time to read the pitch, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, you know, stuff like that really excites me as far as trying to look at that because those are different types of um, practice environments that we can set up, right? We can we can give a player a short bat and tell him to, you know, pin it to his, his pack and say, all right. And then, you know, give more of a random pitch mix. Right. So it's like, you have to respect all these different pitches. This is going to be, you know, similar to what you're going to try to do in the game where we're trying to prioritize contact, um, versus, okay, let's do a hitter count. Um, we'll go, you know, maybe we give him a long bat, um, because we're trying to play into that more like kind of making it harder to be on time but at the same time, we're just going to tell them like it's a fastball, you know? So, and then allowing them to launch the barrel from further away from their body because we're trying to hit the ball harder in this, this count based on, um, you know, trying to optimize our performance based on the constraints of, of the count alone. Um, that's just a really, I guess, kind of specific example of kind of how, you know, I'm analyzing, you know, certain things like that and how 
practice environments or environments in general kind of play an effect? I mean, like, I, I think those are like, that is definitely like a direction that you can go. But one thing that I think when it comes to like the ecological or like kind of skill acquisition side of things, a concept or an underpinning concept that like kind of needs to be a part of the conversation is the fact that we have all these different degrees of freedom. And by degrees of freedom, I mean like your joints can move in all these different directions and, and like, because it's so complex, sometimes like this is why they have kind of like the theory of self-organization mm -hmm. because it becomes a little bit in, in the way I'm describing it sounds like a cop out, but it, it really is. It's not actually that like because of like other things like how birds patterns that like birds show up in and whatnot, like those are more self-organized um, other. There are a lot of other systems that self-organize, but anyways, point being is, is that, when you get into how complex this is, mm -hmm. having a, a basic appreciation of the complexity then makes it seem silly to a certain extent to get sometimes overly hyper-focused on a specific technique, but in like it being the, like you're just going to deploy this in different spots. Mm -hmm. You can... And I would categorize that as like tactics, like an athlete trying to use tactic and strategy, and that would fall under intention. Um, but just having a basic understanding and appreciation for the degrees of freedom problem that the human body struggles with um, in trying to coordinate movement. And additionally, when under pressure and we the human body tends to revert back to a novice sure. and how a novice tends to deal with degrees of freedom. And what a novice tends to do with degrees of freedom is freezing. So essentially the question now becomes is by shortening the bat, let's say they're in a, a an O2 count or mm -hmm. they have a two strike count and then they, they shorten, they don't allow their hands to move as much. What are you having them do? You're essentially having them freeze degrees of freedom. Now, that may be an appropriate solution, but it's also possible that that is a suboptimal solution because if, they, if they're a highly skilled and attuned athlete, um, meaning by attuned, they're highly sensitive to the specifying information in the environment that leads to success, then if they stay and allow their degrees of freedom to move more fluidly instead of freezing... Mm -hmm and work, work more synergistically together, they actually might produce better outcomes, meaning more hits, more doubles, more home runs. Um, and so like that, it, that needs to be something that we need to try to balance when we're thinking about, because sometimes it's going to be the correct thing. Like they actually need to reduce the number of degrees of freedom that they're using. They may need to freeze some, etc. But, we need to be able to like, this is where, you know, the ecological approach or the ecological dynamics approach very much fits the, the very popular concept of individualization. Mm -hmm. um, 
within baseball. Like it, it very much aligns with it's, it's going to be unique to the individual. And so what an ecological approach can provide for you is a framework to help you navigate all of that. And so like the, the one thing that this, this lens has helped me become is less dogmatic when it comes to technique. Um, and so like, I guess that was kind of like the initial thing that I thought of like, yes, this, what you're doing is, is a, is a good, it, like analytical approach. Mm-hmm. But I think adding these, like the things that I laid out will help improve that approach and balance it out so that you can have a better outcome essentially. Right. Okay. So I guess kind of my question would be, if you were to be analyzing something, it would be more about the environments more so than the techniques used in I that mean, environment, or is it just too specific to the individual to, well, at least how I think about it. So there's two components. One is them trying to get them to attune to the specifying information. If they can connect with the information that's going to help them be most successful. So meaning their ability to pick up. And I, in my opinion, subconsciously, mm-hmm. um, or, minimally conscious, um, you know, flow state, essentially pick up the information as ter- in, in terms of like, Oh, this pitch is going to be a strike or a hittable pitch that I can hit. Um, then they, their body is going to create the right mechanics essentially to do that. So in my mind, the first priority is to try to get them to connect with the information that's going to help them be most successful. Secondarily, um, trying to think, remind me a little bit of like kind of where your, your question was. Well, I was just kind of saying like, um, you know, we if we first started talking about like where a hitter could launch the bat from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of saying, you know, you, you would classify that as technique. And the one thing that this new lens has done for you is you're less, um, I guess picky or less concerned with technique and more about the environment that the hitter. I'm is. actually more concerned about the information that they have available to connect to, to, to actually influence or create their technique. Now within that, after they're so better at them to the information. Yes, and then after they're more attuned to that information. Then we can start to maybe tweak or, in my mind, help them explore different movement options to, and you can do these things probably, like in my mind, I would do them concurrently to a certain extent because another very helpful um, kind of axiom or pithy statement, I don't know, uh, is like, you it's it's i can't remember right now off the top of my head who exactly um said this and i can look it up later so that they can get the proper proper attribution um but like we perceive to move and move to perceive hey guys i wanted to pause the podcast and let you all know who actually said the this quote and it was jj gibson in 1979 in his book the ecological approach to visual perception 
Uh, so in future, if there are other things that uh, I either forget or uh, misquote or say, uh, we'll periodically pause the podcast and uh, make corrections so that you guys have the, the best and most accurate information. And now back to the podcast. But uh, anyways, that that quote has really, really stuck with me in terms of like, okay, so there's this, again, like circular relationship here where their movement, so meaning like giving them technique right. type oriented things to use and explore with, that is movement that can help them with their perception. Right. Additionally, the perception of the specifying information will help them with their movement. So like doing these things concurrently, like you can do that, but I don't then get hung up on like, Oh, I tell you to do it a certain way and you don't do it, but yet you're smoking the ball. Like it's like, Oh, cool. So what? Like, so what? Like we have to, as coaches, take our ego out of it a little bit and be like, Oh, sweet. They found out, they found a different solution that looks different than what I was telling them. Um, instead of trying to turn them into a specific prototype model, like to fit our model of hitting. Um, so what, what could that look like as far as balancing, you know, introducing, I guess, certain techniques that we at least hypothesize would benefit the hitter's perception, right? Is that the, the right way to phrase it? Um, well, I mean, if we're going to talk about it, like this is where like I do sometimes flip flop a little bit. So if we're going back to the technique, we, we go back to investigating the problem, right? Of like, okay, so what, so we're trying to get hits, right? So what, what types of hits, balls, batted ball, um, contact gives us the best, um, best, most likely chance for a good outcome. Harder, the better. You know, the harder the better, but also degrees to. But not just that. I mean, like those those numbers are great to describe what happened. At least the the um, the launch angles and mm -hmm. stuff. But it's more the fact of like, okay, what was the spin? Like, if we're gonna go analytic, it's more about like, okay, what was the direction of the ball? Was it going straight? Was it hooking? Was it fading? Like those things are for a hitter, right? So like the other struggles in today's world is like. How do we translate this down to the athlete? Mm -hmm. So quite simply, it's like, okay, we know that balls that come more directly off our bat that go straight, generally speaking, are going to yield the highest uh, return on investment, essentially. on that. So the more we hit those, the better return that we're going to get um, in terms of productivity. So then the question is, is like, okay, what types of movement solutions help us do, do that, that more. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the concepts right now that's highly popular is decel, essentially. Like your hips and your heart may probably, uh, your your lumbar or core, your center mm -hmm. of your core stays online with the middle of the field or going back in the direction of the, of the pitch. pitch. So like those types of things, understanding, oh, if somebody's like way more rotational and they happen to be hooking it, like, okay, that could be something that we want to um, try to nudge them towards and to have them experiment with. And there's multiple different ways that you can go about doing that. Um, 
I mean, which we can get into of what that would look like specifically from an ecological perspective, but there, there are a lot of things that fit with under that. And so that's why I think some of those things like the D-cell stuff or whatever, um, or staying anchored to the ground with your backside helps guys stay hit balls more true because right. the, you know, the, the thing that you want to do when hitting the ball is like hit it more flush. The more flush you can hit the ball, the more the higher energy transfer, the better chances you're going to have. But is that true in all situations? So the question is too, we want to give them the tool that's going to help them be most successful, but we don't want their toolbox to be limited to just that. Right. So because a lot needs to go right for you to hit flush and square and to get maximum energy transfer. So we also need to train them to be successful in other situations and circumstances because there's more than one way to be productive offensively. So I think I kind of, kind of hearing you talk there kind of inspired me about how maybe this all can play together a little bit better. So for me, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, improving the tools in the to- toolbox, so to speak, given what we're trying to accomplish. And so we know that um, given the constraints of the game, there's different types of outcomes that are necessary, whether that's hitting a ball opposite field, hitting a ball to the pull side, hitting it in the air. You know, there's certain things that the hitter does well or does not do well. Um, and, and so kind of what I'm thinking is being able to analyze that type of stuff on the broad level. Right. So for instance, um, basically reverse engineering, looking at a player's data and then working it all the way back to the environment of, of practice. Right. So for instance, say a hitter, um, like, like you were saying, let's say he hooks all the balls that, that he pulls, like he can't get it into the air and it's limiting his, uh, you know, optimal performance because he can't hit doubles and home runs to the pool side. So then it becomes, okay, we know that he is struggling to elevate balls to the pool side. So how do we um, give him more tools in his toolbox, so to speak? How do we, and then, and then we're designing practice um, for him either by introducing constraints that he'll face in the game or maybe, you know, even harder than that to try to, um, like you said earlier, subconsciously make an adaptation so that he is um, all of a sudden better at something that he was not. So that's kind of, I think, how we can maybe try to coordinate the two um, basically by reverse engineering um, you know, data that we acquire on a player and it could be anything, you know, so that's kind of basically seeing the needs of a player at a, a very broad level, um, related to performance and then kind of creating environments that hopefully will help them improve at these very important, um, skills that a hitter needs to perform better and giving them tools to improve those skills. So I think, you know, based upon what you were saying, um, Brock, like 
we we really like one i think it's really good and two i think we just always have to remember that we want to look at like data is just one component of what we're looking at because we want to look at it from a holistic point of view and like and that's in using data to aid in that and i think that's like what you were saying um and so like in using the data to help guide us to go back to look at um hey what was going on you know to create this and then try to go back and look at the environment that created that um you know, at the at the lower levels where, you know, we don't have as much video or whatever, like it may be harder to ascertain some of those things. But like, at, you know, at the higher levels, like you're able to go back and, and look at some of that stuff. And so I, I think, you know, that, that very much kind of covers the, like, you know, what you're talking about. And um, Additionally, though, I think one thing to kind of like be conscientious of too that you were saying is like uh, making making the constraints potentially harder than the game. I think that's okay as long as the specifying information is still there, because if it becomes too hard and they need different information to then be successful at the mm-hmm. task, then it actually might they may become more attuned or become deattuned to the or less attuned to the the information that they need to be attuned to and then attune more to the information that is less relevant to them. So as long as the inform the specifying information, they're still able to pick that up and utilize that to be successful, I think that's totally fine to make it harder than the game. Um I mean I think that goes back to um something else that uh you know that we that we've talked about of like finding your challenge point or like working at the edge of your ability. Mm-hmm. So like that would then you know making it harder than the game may, may push them to their challenge point a little bit. So yeah, I mean I think overall like I think you're just kind of spot on with like how we can utilize uh, data to help uh, with our practice design. Yeah, which I think is pretty much I guess our main goal of kind of getting together and you know, bouncing different ideas off each other's, how can we, you know, I think we stated from the very beginning, the goal is to get the player better. And I think we can use data to um, help create environments that, that will achieve that. So it's kind of a nice segue, I think, mm-hmm. into what we hope this podcast will be. Yeah. And then also using, I mean, cause this is like the first time that I think either one of us have done something like this. So like we can, we can also, you know, through this process show like even our own learning, you know, and how it's not necessarily linear in terms of even how we even put this podcast together. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You know, and so like, I think we can kind of demonstrate some of these concepts that we're talking about in terms of um, player development, uh, skill acquisition and it's nonlinearity and what it looks like to, fail and grow and be less than perfect and to have off the cuff and emergent conversations that just like kind of, you know, emerge naturally. Um, and then trying to figure out how to work it all together. Yeah. And push our own edge and find Mm -hmm. what our own limits are as far as 
you know, our learning capabilities, our knowledge base and, you know, et cetera. Well, and also to like really also engage with other people. I mean, the, the hope is to get feedback from other people and to have other people uh, join in the conversation. Because right now there's there's very few people that will in the baseball world that would be able to have the conversation that we just had. Um, yeah, it would more than likely, unfortunately, probably have devolved to like hitting hitting mechanics and something mm-hmm. very specific with that. And not that we can't talk about that, but I think that lives within the ecological framework and starting to understand some of these other things surrounding it and how data also, you know, works within this framework. Like we just didn't focus all on data no. and like extremely nerding out on that. And I think that's where what we're doing is unique. So... Yeah, I mean, if you guys like this, um, you know, drop us. Uh, you can find us, yeah, hit us up on social media. You can find me at uh, gboyam01 um, on Twitter. Uh, Brock, what's your handle? It's at brock21, B-E-R-O-C-K-21. So B and then rock. So, yeah, hit us up. Um I don't know if we'll create a social media page for this, but at the same point, um, also it'd be, well, no, we, we, we actually, through this process, we, again, the nonlinearity of this, we came up with, uh, with the, at least some ideas for a name. Do you want to share? Yeah, I think we're pretty close on finding the edge podcast. If, if that sounds good to you. No, I, I, I really like it. So finding the edge, uh, will be the name of our, our podcast social media stuff to uh to be determined later to, yeah to be d- determined later so um yeah like share subscribe all the tweet, normal retweet <laughs> yeah nor- normal social media jargon um that comes at the end get it's, our cloud up, get this, our is cloud a, up. this is all we're trying to do we're trying to get our cloud up so <laughs> just uh share it with your mom and everyone else <laughs> Yeah, so thanks for listening, guys. Until next time.
hearing from you guys. Uh, till next time.